I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Colm Tobin about James Joyce's Ulysses. Colm's 10th novel, The Magician, came out in 2021. A book of essays, A Guest at the Feast, is out now in paperback. He's a contributing editor at the LRB, and his piece in the current issue of the paper is a review of annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses by Sam Sloat, Mark Mamigonian and John Turner, which, Colm writes, shows Joyce as both systematic in his approach to fact and at times struggling and often failing in his effort to avoid error. Hello, Coleman. Thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Near the beginning of the piece, you, you quote Joyce's remark that imagination is memory. Do you agree with that? I, I think it's a spur to... I mean, memory is a spur to imagination, but um, obviously Joyce's creation of, of, say, Leopold Bloom can come from memory to some extent... But it really is an invention. It really is imagined. But I suppose the city he's writing about and that, he, and that he really deals in such a detail with is from memory. In other words, that the people who figure in Ulysses are not Joyce's friends or imagined figures, but Joyce's father's friends. And it's the Dublin of 1904. It's the Dublin Joyce left. He was 22 when he left. But the, the sort of stray figures that really make such a difference to the book that are always wandering the city, the chancers, the losers, the guys down on their luck, no one has a job, are all those drinking companions. And the difference between them, you know, that I think really matter to Joyce and the figures, say, in appear in the story like Grace and Dubliners, is that they're witty and they know they're witty. In story Grace and Dubliners, they make jokes, but the reader only gets the jokes. They don't know their jokes. The jokes are on them. They seem like the figures in Grace, that story, seem like pretty stupid people. But once once Ulysses arrives, every joke somebody makes, they're aware of the jokes. The speech is constantly flavoured with jokes. And all these jokes seem to me to be jokes he heard before he left the city that he remembered that his father brought home with him. They're soft and silly jokes, but nonetheless, the people who make them are constantly attempting to amuse one another. And um, a lot of that comes from memory. I mean, do you think he could have written the novel if he'd stayed in Dublin? Could he have written it in, if he were in the city? Or did he have to leave in order to, to be able to write it? Yes, I think it's very important for a writer to have something destroyed on you, you know, that you can then attempt to reconstruct to see if you could make it again. And so the Dublin of 1904 began to matter to him enormously the last year he was in the city, but also a relative time of peace and a sort of undercurrent of trouble in Ireland, but an overcurrent of peace and ease. And... um so, yeah, he, um, he also, I think, it's the, the under map 
of the Dublin is Trieste, another port city, and another city with, with, with a sort of strange relationship to empire. In this case, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was the main port of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And of course, it had a large Jewish population. It was a more cosmopolitan city than Dublin. But the fact that Joyce, anyone has ever done this in a, in a rich European city, which I have, is teaching English as a foreign language privately, meaning you're going to their houses. You're not a servant, but you're also not one of them. You're an in-between figure that, that, you know, has some precious gift, which is the English language. And they'll pay you, usually in cash, usually on the day. And um, so you get a great look into people's houses. And if you're teaching in Trieste, uh, some of your students will be Jewish. And you'll get a re realisation that if you made a Dublin hero a Jewish hero, you would be intervening in a debate about Ireland and its future, its insularity versus a sort of cosmopolitanism, the sort of way Bloom functions, his carnality, for example, his, um, his curiosity about machinery, his, um, his just interest in the world and his being outside the general arguments in Ireland, Catholic, Protestant, sort of nationalist, unionist. He's in between those things. And I think that Joyce got him in Trieste and could not have got him in Dublin. I think it was used as the headline for a, for a piece you wrote for the LRB some years ago that, that someone says to Bloom, and what is your nation, may I ask? Is that right? And, and I can't remember his reply. I mean, this is, the, um, this is the lovely moment, you know, in Cyclops where Bloom is not good at banter. He's not, he's not a noisy man. He's not good in pubs. He doesn't drink, for example. And so therefore... In Cyclops, he's in Barney Kiernan's pub and they're all talking claptrap nonsense, interrupting each other. And someone just turns to him eventually and says, well, what's, what's your nation? And, but also um, says to him, like, what is a nation? What's a nation? And, and of course, Bloom answers twice because he's never sure about anything. And he says a nation is the same people in the same place, which is a good joke. And then he realizes, no, no, that's not right. And he says, no, no, it could be the different people in the same place. You know, the, in other words, he, he, he really isn't good at making these sort of definitions. But eventually, of course, he's goaded into saying what he really means, which is that hatred is nothing. It, it's, it's not for, it's not something that should be pursued. And he's asked, what's the opposite of hatred? Of course, he says the word and, and, and it's an almost unsayable word. He says love. And uh, it, it, it's not something that people in the pub are going to be easy with, but it sets him apart. Um, the whole novel sets him apart. And um, I suppose his great individuality is, is really part of a, a almost political message. But before it's political, of course, there's many other things. And th this question of, of humour and jokes, which it's not always clear if the people telling the joke gets the joke. That brings us a bit, bit to this, this book that you're reviewing, which is 1400 pages long. As you say, a book to a to refer to more than to enjoy, or not a book to read start to finish. So I, I believe you did read it start to finish. I did, yeah. And there are some, there are, um, there are some jokes in it, but it's rather sort of straight faced. I mean, I think if you get three gentlemen working in universities who spend their time grading papers, giving lectures, and you know seeking promotion, uh, you, 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 if they're Joyce scholars, you have to really ask them. Could you please lighten your load? You know, could you please remember that this is a comic novel? And that the idea of annotations to a comic novel, you, you really at some point have to 
allow your own personality or allow at least your own, in a way, being absolutely fed up doing this drudgery, this work. And so, yeah, there are times where you can see them coming through. For example, there's a huge list of saints in Ulysses. And obviously we need all an, an annotation on all these saints. But the middle, Joyce, can, you know, his lists are always great. He just puts in Saint Pseudonymous, Saint Anonymous. And he just, you know, <laughs> saints, various saints. And they just very po-face say, these are not real saints, you know. And um, you go, yeah, they must have really enjoyed writing that and laughing with each other. They say, guess what I've just written? So um, while it isn't a book to savour, I wouldn't suggest it's not beach reading and it's not, um, you know, it's, it, it really isn't enjoyable in that sense. But, but I did get some pleasure just from the, the, the sheer amount of knowledge in it and the fact that every fact that they offer is given, as, is given a source. So if they have something about, you know, a spoon and they'll say, well, the history of spoons is, you know, this book. And also if they, um, um, <laughs> if someone has helped them, they'll, they'll acknowledge you. Um, I, at one point, found something new in Ulysses and that no one had noticed, it seems. And I wrote to a friend and said, look, I think I've noticed something. And the friend wrote to various Joycians who all said, well, we never noticed it. And then eventually Sam Sloat, who the main editor of this book, Sam Sloat, who I don't know, um, said that he would put it, it was going to the book and it would have my name. So um, my, my fight for Irish freedom, my effort to go down in history is a little, my name in brackets, because I found that in the, so many American scholars and outsiders, I mean, people who are not Irish, have done the great work on Ulysses and um, people like Richard Ellman, but also great numbers of scholars. And in the list of people who, who um, in the list, there's, there's an execution in Cyclops, which is sort of Robert Emmett. It's sort of 1803. It's a sort of parody. It's very, very funny. It gives, it's a society event and loads of people attend it. But the execution itself is overseen by a man whose name is given. And it's, um, um, uh, it's um, Tompkins, Tomlinson, Maxwell, French Mullen. So he has a big, long name. It's a many-barreled name. And the annotators previously have thought that this was just a Joyce, a parody of a posh English name. You know? and, um, but of course, Cyclops itself, even though it's in the novel is set in 1904, was written after the 1916 rebellion. So it's written you know, in, in, in the heat of that, thinking about the person who oversaw the executions, who had sort of, was given government, British government powers in Ireland to quell the rebellion and execute the leaders was called Sir John Maxwell. His name is there if you're Irish, but so that the name Tompkins, Tomlinson, Maxwell, French Mullen, as the executioner of Robert Emmett is a tiny little reference to something that has just happened, but that if he goes further will be pure anachronism. So he's got to um, just bury it there. And I was just reading the book. I mean, what I was doing, I was reading the book, Ulysses, and I just saw it and said, I know what that is. He's sneaking in a name just to give us a nudge, meaning I'm here. It's after the rebellion. I know it's meant to be 1904. Please forgive me. Here's John Maxwell. And so this is my <laughs> effort to become famous is to come up with this after all these years and get my name um, into this massive book, which I presume, you've, I presume you've noticed my name being there. But anyway, this is the sort of, in other words, e each time they come up with um, an annotation, they give you the source for their information. And if there's a person who has helped them, they acknowledge that person too. So it's, 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 it's a pretty serious amount of work. But that question of anachronism and those things which are, are mistakes because, I mean, 
use the word mistake advisedly, I suppose, because it's a novel and it's a comic novel. And, but those things which it's set in 1904 and it's written in 1922 and that tension between those different times, that those anachronisms can be productive, like the one you've, you've just referred to. Yeah, I mean, you can get other ones like uh, there's a song, an American-Irish song called Has Anybody Here Seen Kelly? And of course, everyone was called Kelly. And uh, it's in it's in Ulysses. It's, not, it's someone singing it in 1904. Wasn't no no not possible. It's 1908. <laughs> and there's a funny moment which I didn't know before, which is Bloom mentions his wristwatch, and the the word the term wristwatch was not current in 1904. It really be- becomes a term after the First World War. So Joyce puts it in later. But the word wristwatch. Now, th- this is all very important. There, are, there were maybe 5,000 hours in the printing of Ulysses, the first printing of the book done in Dijon by French printers, with Joyce making changes in his spidery handwriting all the time onto the proofs. So there are more or less 5,000, and these have been corrected uh, by Hans-Walter Gabler in, in his edition, which is about 1986. Now, well, I'm not interested in that. that in a way, that, that argument has been settled to a large extent. What I'm interested in here... And what I started to do as I went through the annotations one by one was to note every one in which they find an error that is an error by Joyce. It's not a printing error. It's he made a mistake. Now, how he could do this is simple. He was using two source books. He he really, on his left and his right, he had the good angel of the other angel. One was the Odyssey, obviously. And the other was a book called Tom's Directory. And Tom's Directory was, was a massive tome of information about Dublin in 1904. It was produced each year. And it would give you the names of who was living in each house. And it would give you, um, you know, what business was in each place, what corner business. But it was funny about corners. It would often suggest that the final building in a street was a corner when it wasn't. So Joyce often got corners wrong because he was really thumbing through um, Tom as he was working, it was on the hoof looking, oh, I need him to go this street, right? What does he pass if he turns left going d- down Eccles Street towards Dorset Street and takes, takes that turn left into Dorset Street? What businesses will he see? Well, obviously, he'll see Hanlon's, he'll see... And, and then Joyce makes something up, which is not an error. For example, he has the name of a butcher who's in, someone he knew in Trieste, but it's not a name of, of something on the street, but he knew that. What I'm interested in that, for example, he crosses at one point into the sunlight, saying to go to number 75. No, that's wrong. He's misreading Tom's directory. And so um, the biggest error of all is where he has the Lord Lieutenant, who is doing a sort of cavalcade through the city in the episode called Wandering Rocks. And at the end of the episode, he has him crossing the Royal Canal. And now he's going out towards Balls Bridge. Now, as every school child knows, that's the Grand Canal. There are two canals in Dublin, the Royal Canal, and the other is the Grand Canal. And he gets the canals wrong. Now, it's not a printing error. It's not, you know, nothing. Joyce got them wrong. Gabler, I think cleverly and rightly, left the error in. He wasn't going to correct Joyce's errors. His effort was to respect Joyce's intentions. And so uh, um, scholars, of course, um, you know, they need to be busy. And they think, well, he couldn't have got this wrong. I mean, he was a Dubliner. He knew the city. But um, so he must have really put in the word Royal Canal rather than Grand Canal as a sort of an ironic reference to the empire. This is after all, you know, a a vice-regal cavalcade. But my point would be that if he did want to make an ironic comment on this, he had plenty of opportunities to do so. This would be a most unsubtle way 
of commenting or, you know, riffing on uh, the idea of empire. My idea is, and, and I, I, I'm this, I mean, I'm not alone in having this idea, is that he just made a howling err. And it was so howling, it was so enormous, egregious, all those words, that um, he just didn't notice it. And obviously it was printed by in Dijon, where they didn't know there were two canals in Dublin. And uh, no, no one seems to have done anything about it. And it remains there, as a, I think, as, as a lovely moment where... Now, this is... this. Oh, so I just keep listing the errors that he made. And this might seem like just, just me slightly losing it. You know, I'm, I'm old and, and, and the nights are long and the winter gets longer. And this annotation, you know, takes up a lot of my time. But this is really important. That because Joyce left us so many maps of Ulysses, schemes of, and systems, the book, the book can be too easily read as systematic, as taking its bearings from the Odyssey, from a man whose memory was sort of a preternatural, a sort of sense that he, that he, that he wasn't merely a, a sort of talented writer working, struggling on his book, that he had some extraordinary level of memory that only a native of a country, of a strange, dark country could have. You know, that you say, oh, you know, the, the locals knew the city in a way that no outsider ever could. Well, if you do all that, you, 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 you make the book almost, um, you, 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 I suppose, build a sort of house around the book that you cannot enter is a house that, that has no doors because it was produced with such a level of genius and such a level of planning and care that each thing in the book signifies something else in the Odyssey. And when it doesn't do that, it, well, that the rest of it is really about ideas of, of I, suppose, I suppose, a memory that has been so colonized that it is utterly perfect about locus. In other words, the, the outsiders will never know what we, the locals, know of the forest. And Dublin becomes the forest that only the locals know, that only the natives know. And if you think, well, it's just break, you need to break that up. You need to say, no, no, he, he, there were parts of the city he didn't know. And there were parts of the city he didn't remember. He made an effort to get everything absolutely right. But it was a struggle. And he was using a, a big tome that an outsider could equally use. So that when, when he's passing by a solicitor's office, a lawyer's office on the keys, and uh, I think the figure is 32, but it could be 24. It's one of those eight, you know, multiplied by eight figures. And it was just Bloom is walking along and just says, ah, funny, um, 24 solicitors in one building, counted them. <laughs> and you think, good old Bloom, he's counting solicitors. No, he's not. Joyce has comms directory open. On that particular building on Ormond Quay in Dublin, he notes that um, Tom says there are 24 solicitors' offices. So he just moves it from the book to Bloom. So in other words, he's working on the hoof. And this happens a lot towards the end, towards about, in about 1921, when Joyce really, because he's discovered so much in writing the later episodes of the book, realized they should go back to earlier episodes and rewrite them, putting in more density, more texture, more jokes, more parody. And that he really is um, all the time attempting... Like, he's, he, in other words, he isn't working perfectly from a plan, producing the text from the plan that is dry and cannot be penetrated by the reader for that reason. No, that he's constantly trying out new things 
getting things wrong, trying them again, going back over things. And there's a sort of plenitude in the book that's so untidy that um, it becomes a fascinating experience for the reader because you're involved with somebody's mind um, in a liter, you know, it's somebody's great literary mind functioning in real time in a glittering and exciting and untidy manner rather than, you know, a great book that somehow is beyond you, beyond me, and we need this massive amount of annotation in order merely to read it, let alone come to terms with it. I mean, that, that question of how far the annotations help and, and when they sort of stop helping. I mean, the only, my, I, I have a copy of the, one of those early error-strewn editions. It's the, the ninth unlimited edition, which, which my grandfather gave my grandmother for her 30th birthday, which is a few weeks after the birth of her second child during the Second World War, which you think to some people might have been quite an unwelcome present. But I think if anyone could have read Ulysses while feeding a baby as the doodle bugs flew overhead, it would, it would have been my grandmother. But it is completely unannotated. It doesn't even have episode headings. But that's the only way I've ever read it. I can't quite imagine if you stop to look up every word in the notes, how you'd ever get past the first page, that you have to sort of read it as a story and then come to the, the annotations later. Um, I, I, I do wonder about that because... Um, for example, Terence Killeen's book, recently published, I mean, published about five years ago, called Ulysses Unbound, which, which is now published by Penguin, is, I think, extraordinarily helpful for the general reader in that it gives you very, very clearly the where, the when, the what of each episode. And I think it establishes something that might help a reader, which is that this book is written in episodes. So it's 18 episodes and that each episode obviously takes, you know, he, he, he has all these almost superstitions, but that, you know, a part of the body is, is you know, is to be seen being used at color, but that also there, there are times when you really do need to know something Um what a certain quote is, especially surrounding the Robert Emmett execution, for example. Or, I mean, when he says um, that, it was um, that a book was produced by the two weird sisters in the year of the big wind. You know, the two weird sisters in the year of the big wind. Of course, Lily and Lolly Yates, W.B. Yates' two sisters were bookbinders. I mean, they had a press called Cooler Press. But that there are constant mean references to Yates throughout the book. Now, it really helps you if you know what Joyce's relationship to Yeats and the Irish literary revival was, when a moment where it says, the greatest book to come out of Ireland in my time. Well, that's what Yeats said about Lady Gregory's translations. You know, in, in words, they're, 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 it will enrich your reading if you're constantly able to say, I wonder what that is, that quote or that song, especially that song sometimes, and, um, or that person. There's a very good book, Vivian Igo's book, called Real People in Ulysses. It's a guide to, you know, when there's a name of a person in Ulysses, who was this person in, the re in real life, as many people were. So I, I think that um, having the big annotation beside you will enrich your experience of a first reading of the book. That, in, in other words, something really, really, really could puzzle you. For, I, mean, I mean, I think, for example, Oxen of the Sun is the one Anthony Burgess said that any novelist would really envy most because what he's done is he has made the English language itself, its development, into a gestation period. 
And there's a woman having a baby. It's happened in a, in a maternity hospital. There's a woman having a baby upstairs. And the style of the entire episode is done in the shifting style of English prose, as English prose was studied in primer books in about 1900. So you, so, you, so you had all the history of, you know, Anglo-Saxon um, translations from the Latin, um, the English of various people in the, you know, 17th, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, into the 19th century. With, with, you can see the primers Joyce was using, the anthologies of English prose, which was, of course, studied much more carefully then than it is now. But if you have a guide with you, the guide can show you at what point the gestation is occurring when Joyce moves from the, say, the style of Addison and Steele into some other style um, as the parody or pastiche or whatever you want to call it of the gestation of the English language is going on. So it, if, if you read Oxen of the Sun without this, you, 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 you realise that something is going on with the development of language, the history of the English language. But if you have something else beside you, you can see it's at this moment he's moving from this to this. So I, I think it does help enormously on, on a first reading to have this big book beside you just to, just, to use when, just to use whenever, I think, whenever you want. Some of the mistakes are clearly are deliberate, like the one where he changes the, the street number of the brothel. Yeah, he just couldn't stop. I mean, he had that schoolboy lovely thing about, you know, the idea that it was, it was a group for the protection of prostitutes, you know, should get them off the game. And he gave their address as the address of the main brothel. And obviously there's a moment where he wants a whole lot of sewage to come out into the River Liffey th through a river called the Poddle. So he just moves the Poddle down a bit because he wants it to come out directly under the offices of a man called Tom Kernan. And it, obviously it won't do that. He can't move Tom Kernan because the office is settled. But he thinks he can move the river, and, and he does. And I don't think that's a, an error. I mean, I think it's a deliberate way of just, it just isn't just moving the city for his own convenience. And um, I, 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 I think that's very enjoyable. I mean, you know, these errors are important because he insisted on not making them. He made an enormous effort to be accurate all the time. He wrote these famous letters, one, the famous one to his Aunt Josephine. Coming to the end of the book, and Leopold Bloom it's going to happen. He, his key is in the other trousers, so he doesn't have his key. So he comes home with Stephen. It's, it's, so he has to get back into the house. How's he going to do this? He wants to have him jump over the railings. Now, he actually knows you can jump over the railings because he's, the friend of his who had lived in this house did that in his company when he was back in Dublin in 1912. So, but, he, but he needs to know if a man of a different weight could do it. And his Aunt Josephine doesn't reply. So he, he, but he remembers that they weighed, what, they weighed one another that evening, Joyce and his friend. So he knows what his friend's weight is, which is, I mean, an amazing idea. So he, all he's to do then is, when he's, when he's mentioning Leopold Bloom's weight, is to give him the same weight, literally the same weight, as this character that Joyce has known, who did live in 7 Eccles Street, who gave him the idea for this scene of a man locked out of his own house, jumping over the railings into the basement space and getting in the sort of side door, which happens to be open. This had actually happened and um, Joyce had witnessed it. And I think it's one of the way novelists work, where you take a scene that happened and you move it completely out of its context into some imaginary space where some imaginary people are doing these things that actually happened and in then almost didn't happen and then happened again in your novel. I mean, is that something that you've ever found yourself doing while writing a novel that you've been 
say, writing in Dublin in, about Enniscorthy and you're thinking about something, and you thought, well, would that be possible? And have you ever sort of phoned a friend or relative and asked them to go out and measure the height of the railings, as it were, for a, for a scene in a, in a book you're writing, or do you not work in that, that way? No. Enniscorthy, I, I, I suppose, is smaller, maybe, but I wouldn't have that problem in the sense that I would know what street, what thing, I wouldn't have to write. Um, and no is the answer. <laughs> um, Joyce famously said that the book was so full of puzzles and enigmas and codes that it would keep people studying it forever. And it's you know, people do this with sort of the songs of Bob Dylan and well as well and all sorts of things. The idea that you're looking for a code or there's something that will some secret that can be unlocked. Is that a good way to read? Do you think, or does it can it, it shut more things down than it opens? Um, the authors of this book um, are pretty suspicious of that quote. Joyce said that it would, it would keep the professors busy. And they work out that this was told to Richard Ellman by, by a Frenchman who claimed Joyce had said it to him in the 1920s at a time when the word professors and the whole idea of academic study of a text had really not developed. And they don't think Joyce said this. They think the man needed, for various reasons of his own, to rehabilitate himself in the literary world. He came up with a quote that um, Elman wrote down, but that they don't think is possible. But, I mean, what he did say to Frank Budgen, um, who he knew in Zurich, um, it was much more reliable that, um, that if they knocked Dublin down, uh, you know, that he would be able to... Um, that the book would be a way of, of rebuilding the city. I mean, my point is, yes, but I mean, you get a few corners wrong, so the city would, 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 be, would be skewed in various ways, and the Royal Canal and the Grand Canal might not recognise each other. But, um, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, this idea of citing a book and attempting to make it into a great book by using a really great idea that is based on the Odyssey, taking in one of the great European stories and saying, my book is based on this. It's based on this in a comic way, first of all. In other words, that the less that the the, the, the heroes in, in the Odyssey become very small figures in a, in a, in a really run-down city. But by setting the novel in Dublin, when there was not a history of this, there was no Dickens to work with. There was really no literary source. You were dealing with an unmuddied stream in the sense that you hadn't had um, great Dublin novels before. So by, by connecting the Odyssey to Dublin, by, by creating a sort of myth around ordinary people in an ordinary place, but it being what Dublin had been called the second city of the empire, but also a city, of course, preparing itself for the conflagration that was 1916 and the fact that Ireland would be the first country from the empire. I mean, obviously after the United States, but the first country um, to separate from the empires. And, and so this undercurrent is there all the time of, um, for example, there's a moment I love it, I really love in the book, where the, um, Lady Dudley, who's the wife of the Lord Lieutenant, loves trees. And um, some trees are blown down near her house in the Phoenix Park in Dublin. This is in Ulysses. And uh, she decides to go out and look at the trees and then walks down further and sees that there are picture postcards for sale. She'd like to buy one, send them to her friends. But the picture postcards are all commemorating the Invincibles. 
her group of diehards who in 1882 decided to use knives, which is unusual in the Irish insurgency, to, to attack and murder um, two high members of the British establishment in Ireland. And they were called the Invincibles, and they're all over Ulysses. There's a moment where they're sure that Skin the Goat, who was one of the Invincibles, is actually running the cabman's shelter. That's Skin the Goat. Which, in, in my time in Dublin, British Rose Dugdale had been a famous bomber, IRA bomber. She was a, some sort of posh English woman. She came over to Ireland to cause trouble. But often in a pub, someone would say to you, see that over there? That's Bridget Rose Dugdale. I said, no, it's not. Yes, look at her. She is. It is. Go over and ask her. No, I won't. And, and, and I was in a pub one night when Bridget Rose Dugdale came in and, and said she was collecting money. She said, here for money, which could you money for more bo- bombs and bullets? She said, and um, that whole idea of the, 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 the strange way that ordinary pub life and insurgency sort of actually managed to cross each other. But Lady Dudley can <laughs> only finds picture postcards of this group. Now, this is 1904. This means that there's already a sort of sense of these people as martyrs worth commemorating. Instead of foot trees, you're, you're, you're showing Irish insurgents, Irish murderers um, on picture postcards that you would send to your friends in America, I suppose. But it's a little, it's a little moment which is comic because she just doesn't see the point. And yet it's a tiny moment. Instead of having big political speeches or accounts of how... Ireland is going to free itself. Just this tiny moment, the picture postcards have changed. Watch that. That is the key to, a, you know, to, to, a, to, a, to a, I suppose, a large political truth. And um, I think the novel is very subtle in that regard. In, for example, in when the, the Lord Lieutenant's cavalcade is going through the city in Wandering Rocks. And it's a great moment because you can think, well, let's let the natives throw stones at them or shout insults at them. No, they don't. They barely see them. No one shouts insults at them. It is as though they're invisible. It, it isn't as though they have power. Their powerlessness now is arising from the fact that they're being ignored. They're not being insulted. They're not being threatened. They're not having stones thrown at them. And um, it, it's a curious moment because you don't see them. Everyone else is, who's in the street randomly is described. They say things. They do things. The Lord Lieutenant and his people in the carriage are not described. They do not get to speak. And it's, and it's that idea of ignoring them and silencing them and, you know, reading them, having them happen in shadow that again makes clear that something or other is happening politically. But that Joyce is not going to, um, I suppose, deal with it in a way which is, which is um, unsubtle. It's going to be always there in the background. But if, if, you, if you study it enough, you actually can see this society, whatever is happening, is changing. Yeah. You spend a few paragraphs pursuing or, or appearing to pursue a, a queer reading of the text. You know, we say Bloom's pursuit of Stephen is a form of cruising and so on. And then at the end, you say it's all probably nonsense and we should um, get back to studying the, the annotations. And it wasn't entirely clear to me reading the piece where I mean, it's a very ironic set of paragraphs. And <laughs> And I was wondering where. <laughs> I, uh, I, have a stu- I, I had a student two years ago at Columbia. And uh, he, was, he, he is a PhD student in history. And he just ventured into my Ulysses class. And um, his essay, which has not been published yet, I, I think is an important contribution to this debate. And, and in a way, I, I'm beginning to do work on this. Now, the, the interesting thing is that um, 
no one queer, no gay scholar has really got to work on Ulysses. This is really curious. And in a way, it's only recently that Irish scholars began to work on Ulysses. But um, if you do, using all the, the tools now available to us as gay scholars, if we look at the, you know, I'm talking about the same idea that I've just been talking about now, about, you know, the emerging nation occurring in Ulysses in a set of images, which are often opaque, but there are enough of them there to make clear that this society is not stable or stagnant, that something else is going on. If you apply the same systems, just looking for signs, looking for moments in Ulysses, you find there's enough there to make this reading of the book, I think, um, interesting, worth pursuing, and hard to argue with. Um, the, you know, why does Bloom want to bring Stephen home? Now, it's too crude to say he wants to bring him home for obvious reasons, because he's so excited by meeting someone who, and, and this is something you have to remember from 1904, who has a university education. This is, Stephen is the first generation of Catholics who are getting this sort of education. Bloom's excited by what Stephen knows, but, there's, but there are also moments when, there is, when they're in the brothel, why do they not have sex, either of them? Why does Bloom want to bring Stephen home? Why is he following him all day? Why does Buck Mulligan, early on in the novel, in the National Library scene, point out to Stephen, watch him? Um, you know, meaning he is, um, he is gay. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, well, gay, not the word, but just watch him because there's something in his eyes. There's a desire in his eyes. And early on in the, in, in, in the first episode, um, Buck, Buck Mulligan talks about, you know, Hellenism, Greek love. So, th so there's enough stuff. Bloom has not had sex with his wife for 11 years. Um, there, there, there's enough there in the book to, 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 to make a queer reading of it. I, I think an essential element in reading the book. It, 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 it's not just that people like me are, you know, would, would, of course, would. You would want this. Not necessarily. Why would I want it? I mean, if I want to read about gay life, I look into my heart. But, um, you know, the, 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 there, there is this sense of these isolated figures wandering in the city. And there's a sense of Stephen himself. It, it seems to me filled with what we might call gay self-loathing. Uh, but I, I follow it in the piece just to, just to show, basically, that there's a footnote directing you to a piece that has appeared in James Joyce Quarterly in 1976. So I just decided to go and look, you know, just to take one of the annotations, follow it through to its bitter end and see where it would lead me. And it led me to this essay, which was using systems of code to discover that, in fact, Martha Clifford, who's the woman who writes the letter to Bloom, is in fact a character called Ignatius Gallagher, who has appeared first in this, one of the stories in Dubliners in Little Cloud. And I'm just showing how insane, in a way, this sort of scholarship seems to me using systems of code that Joyce never, ever gave you the code for. So the system of code is being invented by the scholar to discover some, that, that one character is in fact another character. It seems unlikely, it seems preposterous, but what I was interested in was just using the annotations to show you how mad some Joyce scholarship has been. And um, I think I referred to it as a red herring, but I almost had pink herring for a while and then I just decided to go back to red, pink herring. Don't, don't, don't pink herring. Yeah, but that doesn't... Well, I got the impression earlier that you didn't really want to talk about your own writing, but I'm going to ask you another question about it, which is that you, you've written novels about Henry James 
and about Thomas Mann. Does Joyce appeal as a as a potential character for fiction, or is there some way in which he's to you as a potential subject? No, not at all. Um, the, the the interesting thing about him is that there's really no great mystery about him. In, in, in other words, that the life he lived, there's no biographer going to change everything we think about him. In in a way that when Thomas Mann's diaries came out, we, Thomas Mann dying in '55, the diaries coming out 25 years later, that we really did get a different view of this man. He seemed much more ill at ease. Um, much more uncertain. His erotic dreams were homosexual. And um, the difference between the figure at the podium um, giving these long scholarly lectures and the man who went home is so enormous. And in, in the case of Henry James, it was all about masks and second selves and reinventing himself and being constantly in between, being in between in in his, I suppose, his nationality, he wasn't American, he wasn't English, he wasn't of Irish origin, you know, all, all the things he wasn't. And so I was interested in that, I suppose, great distance in both of them between the figure who appeared and the figure who went home, you know. And uh, I, I don't have that idea. For example, I think, I, even though I think that there there is a queer way of reading Ulysses, I don't think this extends to Joyce's own sexuality himself. I mean, I think from letters and from all the information we have, his sexuality seems to me very certain. And I'm not interested in that. I, I, there's nothing I can do with that. I mean, I, I couldn't be bothered with someone whose who sexuality is certain. You, you finish your piece of talking about the, the end, the end of the novel, the, the very famous ending, um, and the way that an earlier draft that Molly Bloom says, I would... And then he changed that quite late. He changed I would to I will, yes. And what difference does that make to the to the book? Yeah, um, Luca Crispy has a pretty good, his Joyce Scholar has a pretty good version of this where, yes, he does have would and it comes will, but Luca Crispy can find a draft where it's still would and as he's writing on the actual line, would gets crossed. It isn't that would gets crossed out later and he puts will on top of it would becomes will on the line. Now, that's an exciting manuscript because you oh, my God, I will. I, I will. Not I would. Uh, that, that, that it's not, a, you know, it's not a word inserted. It's, it's a change made as he's working. And that's very exciting. I mean, that's a lovely sort of manuscript thing. What, what's interesting also, you know, is, is um, the annotators don't really go in much to looking at manuscript changes, because if they do that, it's a different sort of book. But once or twice when they do, it's just great, because in those gender-bending sections, which have become so exciting now for us, you know, watching Leopold Bloom becoming a woman, giving birth, you know, having all sorts of sex as a woman, and watching Bella Cohen becoming bellow and becoming a man. It's just exciting and it just, it's a great adventure. It's a sort of, that, that episode is the novel's unconscious operating and it's, it's tremendously exciting to see. Joyce felt he'd gone everywhere, but he hadn't gone into the deep dream, the deep dream life of his characters. And how do you do that? And so, um, but he, what, what's interesting from that manuscript source is he did it tentatively. In, in, in other words, it isn't as though he was sure when Leopold would be Leopold and when he would become a woman. There's a moment where he's Leopoldina and uh, Joyce just changes that back to Bloom. You know, he, he isn't ready yet to make him Leopold 
Dina. And similarly with, with Bella Cohen, she's Bello. And then, no, no, just no, put her back to Bella. You know, that, 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 that this is, in other words, the more you realize that this novel comes from a sort of radical uncertainty, a sort of like desperate urge to get it right more, that the novel is much more untidy than we think it is, then the novel becomes more exciting. And, um, and, and I think um, we can get much more from it if we realize the amount of, um, I suppose, unstable energy that went into it. Colin Tavine, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. You can read Colin Tobin's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Jeff Mann on catastrophic thinking and Erin McGlucky on early modern midwives. We're still keen to know listeners' thoughts about the LRB podcast and would be grateful if you'd take a couple of minutes to respond to our survey. So go to lrb.me forward slash pod survey. That's lrb.me forward slash pod survey, all one word. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. You can read Patricia's piece in the 13th of July issue of the LRB, along with Will Davis on inflation and Josephine Quinn on Cyrus the Great. The LRB podcast is produced by Zoe Kilburn and Anthony Wilkes, and the music is by Kieran Brunt.